Hey, history enthusiasts, you get not one, but two events in history today. Heads up that you also might hear two different hosts, me and Tracy V. Wilson. With that said, on with the show. Welcome to this day in history class. It's July 2nd. Today in 1839, the enslaved people aboard the Amistad staged a rebellion. When this happened, even though these were enslaved people aboard the Amistad, the transatlantic slave trade was largely abolished. It had been outlawed in the United States and in Great Britain in 1807, and then several other European nations had also banned it in the 18-teens. But slavery itself was still legal in a lot of the places that had been importing enslaved labor from Africa. And then the slave traders, a lot of them were still working, even though this was illegal. And as one example, the port of Lomboco, which was controlled by Pedro Blanco of Spain, was still an active slave port. This was on the coast of what's now Sierra Leone. And in early 1839, more than 500 Africans, maybe even closer to 600, were transported from the interior of Sierra Leone and were sent to Cuba aboard a slave ship called the Tacora from the port of Lomboco. After this ship arrived in Cuba, Jose Ruiz and Pedro Montes purchased 53 of the people who were aboard, including four children. And their intent was for these people was to send them by ship aboard the Amistad to other plantations that they had. The treatment of these people aboard the Amistad was just appalling. There was often not enough food or water. Beatings were common. The cook tormented them constantly, basically threatening them with the horrors that were awaiting them once they got off the ship. Eventually, an enslaved man named Singbi Pie, who is sometimes called by the Spanish name Cinque, led a rebellion. Before dawn on July 2nd, while they were still at sea, he got the other people who were enslaved with him to figure out how to release themselves from their shackles in the ship's hold. This was a kind of a feat. They were in the ship's hold. There wasn't a below decks, really. There was just the upper deck and the cargo hold. They were shackled down there. They represented at least nine different ethnic groups from parts of what's now Sierra Leone. They didn't necessarily all even speak the same language very well, but they all worked together in spite of all this to free themselves from their shackles, then to kill the cook that had been tormenting them in his sleep, and also to take on the captain of the ship. The crew were not able to grab their firearms because things happened so quickly. The enslaved people armed themselves with cane knives that they had found in the hold with them, And they were basically able to take over the whole ship. A couple of the crew abandoned ship and and made their way away in a lifeboat. And they captured Ruiz and Montez, the two men that had, at least in theory, purchased them. And then they ran into a problem. They had taken over the ship. They had succeeded in their rebellion. But these are people who are mostly from the interior of the country. They didn't live on the coast. They didn't have experience with boats and ships. They didn't really know how to navigate in this part of the world. They were on the opposite side of the planet from where they had been living. So they had to still rely on the two men who had purchased them. What they told them to do was to take them back to Africa. So Ruiz and Montez at first acted like they were doing this, but then they turned the ship to the north to instead, hopefully, in their minds, find somebody who would help them. 
What wound up happening instead was that they made their way all the way up the coast of North America, all the way to New York, to the southern tip of Long Island. And that is where a U.S. Navy vessel spotted them on August 26th, weeks after that mutiny had happened. At this point, some of the Africans aboard had died of exposure or thirst. The conditions were still not good. They did not have a lot of resources. But Ruiz and Montez were allowed to go, and the surviving Africans were imprisoned and charged with murder in the deaths of the captain and the cook. Those murder charges were later dropped, but they still had to face trial in Hartford, Connecticut, because there were multiple different entities all claiming to own these people. Eventually, a court in Hartford found in favor of the Africans, saying that they, number one, had the right to defend themselves, and number two, that they had been brought to Cuba illegally so that they were free. But the administration of President Martin Van Buren appealed that decision. It wound up being former President John Quincy Adams who defended the Africans before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court upheld that lower court's ruling. This legal process had gone on for more than a year and a half, and that was on top of the weeks and weeks they had spent at sea both before and after the mutiny. But this legal victory didn't have any provisions for them to get home. There was no repatriation built into it, and the Navy was given salvage rights for the Amistad, so they couldn't even just sell the ship to pay for their way back. Abolitionists wound up raising money for them to get back home, and the 35 surviving Africans boarded a ship bound back for Africa on November 26, 1841. They had several missionaries along with them. These missionaries, once they all arrived in Africa, began doing their missionary work, and their letters back to the United States for years included little updates about people who had been aboard the Amistad. They were referred to as one of the Amistads in these letters. According to the descendants of Singbe Pie, he returned home to find that his wife and two of his daughters were missing. It's possible that they were victims of the same slave trade that he had been, After a fruitless search for them, according to his family records, he returned home to live near a surviving son and later on his other descendants. Thanks to Eves Jeffcoat for her research work on today's episode and to Tari Harrison, who edits and produces all of these episodes. You can learn more about the Amistad Rebellion in the Stuff You Missed in History class episode from April 6, 2011. And you can subscribe to the Stay in History class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Tune in tomorrow for an ancient discovery, at least one that we think is ancient. Hi there. Welcome to This Day in History class where we sift through the artifacts of history seven days a week. The day was July 2nd, 1925. Patrice and Marie Lumumba was born in Onalu, Kasai province in the Belgian Congo. Lumumba went on to become the first prime minister of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. He was assassinated in 1961, but he is remembered as a Pan-Africanist leader and freedom fighter. Lumumba was one of four sons born to poor farmers when Congo was under Belgian rule. He was a member of the Tetela ethnic group. As a child, he began going to missionary schools, which spent little time instructing Black children in book study and more time preparing them for manual labor. 
Regardless, teachers gave him books to read. And after he finished primary school, he went on to secondary school. Though he had always been eager in his quest for knowledge, he left secondary school at age 18. At this time, the Belgian Congo was at war, and Lumumba was stuck between Catholic and Protestant missionaries who both aligned with Belgian colonial authorities. He decided to find employment elsewhere, relocating to places like Kalima, Ubuntu, and Kisangani, then called Stanleyville. Lumumba became active in groups of Ebulue, Africans who had been educated in westernized mission schools who gathered to debate issues and exchange knowledge. Lumumba learned to fluently speak several languages, including Swahili, French, and Lingala. He started to write essays and poems, many of which were anti-colonialist, for Congolese journals. In 1947, he went to postal school and got a job as a postal worker in Kinshasa, then called Leopoldville. He soon became an accountant in the post office in Kisangani, and in 1951, he married 15-year-old Pauline Obangu. Lumumba helped organize a postal workers' union, founded a group of African intellectuals and liberal Europeans whose goal was to improve race relations, continued writing for the Congolese press, and joined a local branch of a Belgian liberal party. In 1956, he was a part of a delegation of Congolese people visiting Belgium to discuss political reform. But when he returned to Congo, he was arrested for embezzlement from the post office. Though he said he was innocent and had borrowed the money, he ended up serving about a year in prison. Once he was released, he became the sales director of a brewery in Kinshasa and helped found the Congolese National Movement, or MNC, in 1958. The MNC was a political group that opposed Belgian control, called for Congo's resources to benefit the Congolese first, and demanded independence. Ghana had recently gained its independence from Britain, and in December of 1958, Lumumba attended the first All-African People's Conference in Accra, Ghana, organized by Kwame Nkrumah. Lumumba became more radical as he recognized the oppression of Belgian colonial rule, and his militant nationalism, drive for progress, and leadership made him a target for authorities. The MNC split into two organizations in 1959, as Lumumba took a radical stance against colonial rule, with Lumumba's side appropriately known as MNC Lumumba. After riots broke out and people were killed in Kisangani after he gave a speech at an MNC conference, Lumumba was arrested on the charge of inciting anti-colonial riots. But he was soon released from prison to attend a roundtable conference in Brussels, convened to discuss the future of the Congo. Belgium granted the Congo independence, slated for June 30, 1960. In the national elections in May, the MNC came out ahead, winning 33 seats out of 137. Lumumba became the Belgian Congo's first prime minister, with rival Joseph Kasavubu as the president. On June 30th, Independence Day, Lumumba surprised people with a speech that denounced Belgian domination, emphasized the suffering of Congolese people under colonial rule, and called for Congolese unification. This was just after the Belgian king had given a speech supporting colonialism and telling Congo to step into the future cautiously. After independence, the Congo fell into disorder. When Lumumba called in help from the Soviet Union, 
Belgians and Americans accused him of being communist. Army commander Joseph Mobutu arrested Lumumba in Kasavubu and took power. A CIA scientist was sent to poison him, but that never happened. Though Lumumba managed to escape, he was recaptured and sent to Katanga, a province that had seceded from Congo in the wake of independence and was under Belgian control. Lumumba was tortured and then assassinated in Katanga on January 17, 1961. Many people today view him as a martyr for anti-imperialism and pan-Africanism. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. We'd love it if you left us a comment on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at T-D-I-H-C Podcast. We'll see you here in the same place tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.